Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Matthew 12, and beginning at verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Lord God, we thank you that we can be here today. Thank you, Lord, that we can have Bibles and open them up and read them freely. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. We thank you, Lord, for your power and your strength. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit today, you would have your way with us as we are in your presence together. We pray, Lord, that you would do whatever you want. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give you the main point right off the bat today. So here it is. We must have an accurate view of Jesus so that we can live yielded, transformed lives to the glory of God. We must have an accurate view of Jesus so that we can live transformed lives to the glory of God. To please God, we must understand who Jesus is and what he does and go along with him. In other words, a true knowledge of God leads to a truly changed life, and an accurate view of Jesus is essential in the process. Put another way, misunderstand Jesus, and you'll resist his lordship. Trust him, and you'll be transformed. Now, I know that seeing things accurately is not an easy thing to do. As the years go by, it's a lot harder uh, visually. Some people are nearsighted, others are farsighted. Some lose or don't use their corrective lenses. Others have great vision. Spiritually speaking, the Pharisees were blinded. They were blind to to Jesus' identity and mission. They didn't understand who he was or what he came to do. Jesus was attacking both the seen and the unseen. Jesus was attacking the seen power structures of his day and also the unseen spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And they opposed him. They fought against him. People misunderstood his identity and his mission and therefore resisted his lordship. Today we're talking about Jesus being the servant lord. Back then many of the people wanted him to be a political or military deliverer. Today it's a bit different. I don't know that many people who who expect that of Jesus. Today, many want to see Jesus as a vending machine or a genie 
who will give them what they want as long as they press the right button or ask the right question. Those who are blinded by Satan cannot see, as the scriptures tell us, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. They cannot grasp his preeminence. They cannot grasp his, his deity. And they do not understand his mission. And what they couldn't see back then, and what many can't see today, is that Jesus' ministry confirms his identity. What he does shows who he is and what the scriptures told about him even hundreds of years before he came were true. What he does shows who he is. Now we're in Matthew chapter 12 as we're going through the gospel of Matthew. And in, in Matthew 12, we've seen Jesus portrayed in several ways. We have seen Jesus portrayed as the Sabbath Lord, the one who is, who is a ruler over everything. He rules over all, but he also rules then over the one in seven rest that God gives. The Pharisees had issues with that. We also saw that Jesus is the Scripture's Lord, the Lord of the Scriptures, that he is the one who interprets it correctly because he spoke the word. He decides what it means and what it allows. The Pharisees had problems with that as well. Today we see that Jesus is the servant Lord, come to give his life as a ransom for many. They had a problem with that as well. So do many people today. So in light of the, the Pharisees' twisted views, in, in light of uh, many wrong views of Jesus that are prevalent today, uh, which lead many to resist his lordship, resist yielding to him, the verses we're going to look at today, Matthew 12, 15 through 21, give us, as one writer put it, a God's eye view of Jesus and the gospel. It's like climbing a high mountain. Angela and I were recently uh, hiking at uh, Peters Canyon Regional Park. And you come to the very top of this one hill. And you can see for miles and miles and miles. But you can't see that view when you're down on the regular trail. You've got you've to get up where you can see. It, it's like being on the California Soaring at California Adventure. You see this bigger picture. You see a panorama view. John MacArthur calls these verses an oasis of refreshing beauty in the desert of chapters 11 and 12, which chronicle the first major rejection of Christ led by the scribes and the Pharisees. So in light of the fierce opposition to Jesus and mankind's inaccuracies, what we have here is a reminder of who Jesus is and what he will do. It's kind of like being on an open ocean and and you're on a ship and, and you want to get somewhere, but you've got to trust your, the instruments. And for us, it's the Bible. It's, 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 it's also true that when you're out there on the ocean, you've got to fix your sight on one fixed goal out on the horizon. For us, that's Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're off even one degree or, or so, you're going to miss the mark. And so... An accurate view of Jesus will help us to navigate through life, especially in the midst of so many deceptive influences that are present. So let's, let's pick it up at verse 15. Let's go to verse 15 and see what's, what's going on here. The, the Pharisees at the time were conspiring with their economic and political enemies, their religious enemies, the Herodians, to kill Jesus. That's what's going on. 
And so it says in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, he's aware of their plans. He, he knew their thoughts and their motives. And, and so he withdrew so as not to attract undue attention before it was time. His time had not yet come. He had come specifically to earth to die for the sins of the world, but not at this point. And it says that when he withdrew, many followed him. They, they went after him. They, they trusted him. They knew he was good. They had begun to believe. They, their faith in him was growing while their distrust of their, of their hypocritical religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, had also grown. And it says here that those that followed him, he healed all of them. That, that every one of them was healed. That's amazing. It's like, wow, uh, not just one man with a withered hand, but every single one of them who followed him was healed, that needed healing. The Greek word is therapeuo, and it basically means that he served them, he attended to them in the process of healing them. And again, it wasn't just a few, it was not just a, a select crowd of people, but it was all who were in need. Verse 16 tells us that he told them not to tell anyone who he was. Now, can you imagine that? You're, you're out there, you're following Jesus. You're beginning to think, wow, this, this is someone who has something that I need. Some, he's different. Uh, and he, you go and, and you're not realizing fully who he is yet, but you're, you're getting glimpses and you're, you're thinking, this, this is... This, this is the Messiah. And then he heals you of, of a disease you have, of, a, of an affliction you have. Well, you would want to go tell everyone you knew. But Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Think about how excited you'd be and not be able to tell, not be able to say. Verse 17, we find out why. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy that was pointing to Jesus. There is a, a, a Greek word that's embedded in, in this, this verse 17. It's, it's hina, and it basically it's so that. But, but what it indicates is that, that everything in Jesus' ministry was, was, was divinely ordered. It was, it, was, it was ordered by God. It was planned by God. It was arranged by God. And that's important to know. Now, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. It's the longest Old Testament quote in the Gospel of Matthew. And this quote reveals Christ's identity as the servant Lord. Now, again, it, it, it seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? The servant Lord a Lord is supposed to be served, not the one who does the serving, but not so with Jesus. As Jesus said in, Matthew, uh, in Mark 20, 28, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to, to give his life a, a ransom for many. And Jesus, excuse me, Matthew 20, 28, Jesus is, is that servant Lord. And and this is one of the first in Isaiah that speaks of the servant of God and what he would do. It starts this way. It says, my servant, literally my child, my child, whom I have chosen, 
the one I love, the one in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit on him. Now, it sounds a lot like what God the Father said at Jesus' baptism. It sounds a lot like what the Father said at the transfiguration. Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Basically, Jesus had come up from Galilee to the Jordan to John, John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. Now, John tried to say, no, you need to baptize me. Jesus says, no, uh, this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Go ahead and do it. So he consents, and when Jesus was baptized, it says in verse 16, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven that said this, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Over in Matthew chapter 17 at the transfiguration, uh, the Father says, this is my Son, listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. So this sounds a lot like that. And, and what, it, what is happening is the Father, in those instances, was giving credence to who Jesus is uh, so that people would give glory to God. And that's just what Matthew is doing here as well. This is kind of a, a mid-gospel uh, reminder. It's kind of like all the rain we had recently, and it's all cloudy, and, and then all of a sudden... One morning you wake up and there's blue sky and, and the sun is shining and, and then 10 minutes later it's you know, clouded over. But you got that brief glimpse of, of sunshine and the blue sky. Well, this here is a brief glimpse, it, kind of almost in the middle of Matthew's gospel, that shows here's what Jesus came to do, here's what he's going to do, and that road's going to get rougher to the cross. But it's a picture of, of the cross, it's a picture of Christ's ministry. And, and it's, it's really a, a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, picture of, of, you could almost say there's hardly any words in Scripture of more beautiful description of who Jesus is, but in these verses that are quoted from Isaiah. Now the view gets even clearer as we get into verses 18 through 21. And we see that, that Jesus' ministry involves bringing justice and, and working humbly and showing mercy and giving salvation. We're going to see those four things. His ministry uh, involves bringing justice, working humbly, showing mercy, and giving salvation. Uh, what, is, what, what we're going to see is that his ministry confirms his identity. And, and the first thing it says that God's servant would do is, is justice. Look with me at verse 18. It says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Justice to the Gentiles. It, that Jesus is going to be bringing this rare commodity in, in, that is in short supply in the world of men, but, but abundant in God's economy, this justice, and Jesus brings it. Jesus brings justice. The Greek word there is krisis. It means to judge. It means to decide. It means to make a decision in court. The idea is it's referring to God's verdict. That God's verdict, God's going to have the last word. And Jesus will bring this about. He is going to proclaim justice to the nations. Uh, ta ethne, basically, to all peoples. To the Gentiles. To, to every people group. Now, for those who experienced uh, in life a lack of justice, this is 
going to be reason for joy. This, this is going to be this is going to be good because we know that Jesus defends the fatherless. Jesus defends the widow and Jesus defends the downtrodden, takes up for the downtrodden. At the cross, Jesus accomplished ultimate justice. D.A. Carson calls justice here righteousness broadly conceived as the self-revelation of God's character for the good of the nations. Righteously, righteousness broadly conceived as the self-revelation of God's character for the good of the nations. God is showing who he is in righteousness for the good of all people. And at the same time, he's holding them accountable. He holds them to account, calling them to account. What we see here is that Jesus is both redeemer and judge. Uh, This one who brings justice, this one who preaches justice to the nations is both redeemer and judge. He redeems and judges in righteousness. And here what you see is a concern for the Gentiles uh, appearing once again in, in, uh, in anticipation of the Great Commission in Matthew 20, excuse me, 28, 18 through 20, the go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all peoples. But like Jesus, we must seek justice. We, we know that in Christ, there is the accomplishment of, of a work of righteousness that will happen at the cross and that judgment and justice for all will be a part of that work. But like Jesus, we must seek justice. We must, and here's the way I'm going to put it, we must seek the good of all for God. Seek the good of all for God. Seek good for all people for God's glory. Now right away we're in trouble. I am. Because I don't seek the good of all for God's glory. I seek the good of some for God's glory. I'm thinking about babies this morning. And not because I have an announcement to make. Because I don't. Let's just get that straight right now, okay? Um, uh, But I'm thinking about babies this morning. This being what is been known for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I've been reading up about that and, you know, there are, there are writers out there that are out of their minds. And, and one I wrote, and I'm, I'm glad I forgot his name. He said that a, a man and a mouse are pretty much on the same footing. That a puppy could be more important than a baby if the puppy's hurting and the baby's not. I'm thinking about babies this morning. 53 million aborted unborn children in the U.S. since 1973. Now, if you've been a part of anything like that, this is not condemnation. There's mercy in Christ. But I'm thinking about the idea that Jesus brings justice and that we must seek the good of all for God's sake. And I'm thinking about how many babies have been killed I'm thinking about the elderly today I'm thinking about the elderly because in our culture the elderly are often devalued I'm thinking about the youth I'm thinking about the middle aged and I'm thinking about the persecuted church Christians who are suffering persecution as I speak this past Christmas 
marked uh, new kinds of attacks against Christians from North Africa to the Middle East. In a span of just a few days, from December 23rd to 31st of 2010, over 63 Christians were killed for their faith. Hundreds more wounded and arrested. One Iranian Christian left this message for his friends. Unfortunately, early this morning, the authorities came to our homes. They arrested us and many other believers. I want to ask you to pray for us. We are sure God will never leave us or forsake us. Sorry for the bad news over Christmas, but I believe God will do something for us. The landmark 1974 Lausanne Covenant from the International Congress on World Evangelization in Lausanne, Switzerland, affirmed these words, and these are words that every Bible-believing Christian ought to, ought to stand with and stand for. God is both the creator and the judge of all people. We therefore should share his concern for justice and reconciliation throughout human society and for the liberation of men and women from every kind of oppression. Because men and women are made in the image of God, every person, regardless of race, religion, color, culture, class, sex, or age, has an intrinsic dignity because of which he or she should be respected and served, not exploited. We must seek justice for all. And Jesus brings justice. Verse 19 points out another part of Christ's ministry. Verse 19 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That doesn't mean that Jesus wouldn't talk in the streets. He did often talk out in public. But it points to the fact that Jesus works humbly and gently. We've already read it in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am humble and gentle in heart. That's how he described himself. It says here that he will not quarrel. He will not strive. It, it, it points to an antagonism and a, and a hostility that will not be there with Jesus. This is what Jesus won't do. He's not going to quarrel. He won't be antagonistic. He won't be hostile. He won't strive. And he won't cry out. No one's going to hear his voice in the streets in the way of someone who shouts and makes a ruckus to just call attention to themselves. Jesus won't do that. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus um, humbled himself. He, He laid aside his privileges as God and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 1 Corinthians one twenty four tells us that Jesus is the wisdom and power of God. Now, wisdom and power are not usually put side by side with humility and gentleness. But with Jesus, they fit perfectly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24 says this, To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. It shows Christ's power and wisdom that he would be humble and gentle. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1 says this, Consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And then it says this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is the wisdom and power of God. And we see that embodied in his humility and his gentleness. And like Jesus, we must live humbly and gently in his wisdom, in his power, not our own. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's an encouragement, there's an exhortation, a strong word of exhortation. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 10 through 12. We'll start at verse 9. It says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no, one, no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So Paul is saying, good job. You're doing great. Keep going. Do that. And then he says, he says this, he says, but we urge you. Now this is the strong language. A strong exhortation. He says, we urge you brothers to do this more and more. Don't stop doing this. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It points us to the fact that we must lead a quiet life and share with those in need. Aspire to lead a quiet life, work with your own hands, live properly, not be in need, help meet, be able then to help meet physical and spiritual needs as they arise. And a quiet life is not silent. Still waters run deep. Ephesians 4.28 says, a word to those who steal. It says, if, if, whoever's been stealing, don't, even, don't steal anymore, but work with your hands so that you would have something to share with those who have need, even, even a correction to those who are off the track and need to get back on. Jesus being perfect, Jesus being sinless, is the perfect embodiment of humility and, and gentleness, his wisdom and power evident in that realm. But for us, it's, a, it's another story. And for us, pride gets in the way. Pride is the enemy of humility. C.H. Spurgeon said this. He, he said, some weeds will grow anywhere. We all know that's true. And Look out in your yard. Some weeds will grow anywhere. One of them is pride. It will grow on a rock as well as in a garden. It is a weed that is dreadfully rampant. It needs cutting down every week or else we'd be up to our knees in them. It's so true. And Christ's humility kills pride. That's what kills my pride. Not my hard work to kill it. 
You get the roundup in your yard. You can't round it up on your own. Only Jesus can take pride and put it where it's supposed to be. John Piper said of Jesus, we admire him for his glory, but even more because his glory is mingled with humility. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. God is drawn to the humble. God God is opposed to the proud. Humility and pride cannot coexist. When one is fostered, the other is destroyed, defeated. Tim Keller says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. C.J. Mahaney describes the daily battle quietly raging in every Christian asking whether we will passively accommodate the enemy of our soul, pride, or actively cultivate our best friend, humility. Because when we acknowledge the deception of pride and intentionally humble ourselves, we become free to to savor God's abundant mercies and unlikely grace. So make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and humbly and gently serve God. Verse 20 shows us another element of Christ's ministry. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, reeds and, and, and wicks are not something things that we deal with often in daily living now. A reed that was bruised, it says, uh, crushed, won't be broken, won't be splintered to oblivion, won't be broken into pieces. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What this shows is that Jesus shows mercy. Mercy. He's merciful. Reeds and wicks, though, what's all that about? Reeds were one of the most common um, materials used in everyday life in Bible times. Stems from a variety of plants, including flax, were used for pens, writing utensils, writing instruments, walking sticks, weaving, and even making parchment out of. Ezekiel used a reed for a measuring rod, a measuring stick. But once a reed was broken, once it was bent, once it was splintered, it was useless. And there were lots of them around. You can get them all over the place. They, they didn't cost you anything. And once they were damaged, they were thrown away. And they were plentiful, so it didn't matter. Now, a wick, the closest thing we would have is the, 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 little, the little string part on the top of a candle, right? Okay, a wick. But there it was a wick in an, on an oil lamp, and it would be smoldering, because it was either low on oil or it hadn't been trimmed correctly. And a smoldering wick was blown out because it was only giving smoke rather than a flame. There was no benefit to it. The idea here about the, the reed and the wick is that that which, which is, is, seems useless and worthless. And what we see here is that Jesus welcomes those that the world views as useless and worthless. 
Now, mercy is another thing in short supply with mankind, but plentiful with God. With him, there is mercy. And mercy withholds the punishment deserved and offers a blessing to the recipient. Mercy, the Bible tells us, triumphs over judgment. And it is mercy that Jesus shows, as described in Isaiah 42 and and quoted here in Matthew 12, in not breaking the bruised reed, not snuffing out the smoldering wick. And, And you put it in words that we would use. It's, but Jesus never kicks you when you're down. Jesus lifts you up. He doesn't pile on you. He doesn't slam you. Jesus speaks wonderful words of life and blessing and peace and kindness. He comforts the afflicted. He, in mercy, saves. And what we see is that in God's economy, no one is useless or worthless. No one. And there we're in trouble again. Because so many of us think of ourselves as useless or worthless. And so we would be found to be going against God. If you say that you're worthless and useless, that doesn't please God. You want to please God? Just say, Lord, I don't feel real hot about myself. Please use me any way you want. But I know I'm not worthless. And I know I'm not useless. Because you've given me gifts. Because you indwell my life. Because the Spirit's with me. And because I've got the Word of God. And, and I've got my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not useless. I'm not worthless. And we're in trouble on another account too. Because often we tell We say that other people are useless or worthless. And if we don't say it, we we act like it. We give the message. We ought not to do that. Like Jesus, and we've got to remember this, every no one is useless or worthless because everyone has this inherent worth because they're made in the image of God. Therefore, like Jesus, we need to show mercy. Here, here's the tough part, though. To all. To all. So we must do good to all regardless of status. That's the tough part. Regardless of status. Because there are, there, it, it, there are two groups that are very easy to withhold mercy from. It's easy, it's easy to withhold mercy from the lowest. You think, well... They don't deserve it. Or they got themselves into this. Right? But it's also easy to to withhold mercy from the highest. Thinking, well, they don't need it. They're self-sufficient. But no one is self-sufficient. And no one is beyond us showing mercy to. So both can not be further from the truth. So don't withhold good from those to whom it is due, and that would be anyone. But show mercy to all. It says here in verse 20 that he will do this. He will not break the reed. He will not quench the wick until he brings justice to victory. What's that about? Well, that's the fact that God's servant will not Add to the burden of the oppressed. He will, not, he will not weigh down the needy, but he will accomplish his mission of, of bringing salvation. 
And, and that's what verse 21 shows us. This fourth thing about Jesus' ministry is that Jesus gives salvation. It says in verse 21, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope, the nations will hope, all peoples, people from all people groups will hope. When I was a kid growing up in Downey, my dad was a L.A. policeman, like I've told you before, and I would go to L.A. often. And when I was a kid, I remember seeing this sign off the freeway, and it, it was a, a big red neon sign with two words on it. That Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I remember at the time thinking, that's weird. Why would you put that on top of a building? Then I got saved by Jesus, and I thought, wow, that's awesome. We've got to put that on top of every building. Jesus saves. It says that in his name the Gentiles will hope. There's all these codes in the Bible that you, you, there's a word you see and it, it means, it signifies something else. And, and his name is code for who he is, his person. Whenever you see it, it, in the name of Jesus, that means according to everything Jesus is, all Jesus is. So in his name the Gentiles will hope. It's not a, a faceless name. They're trusting in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, this, this servant Lord. In his name, the, the, the nations will put their hope. They will look to him for salvation. My brother-in-law is a firefighter. My closest friend is one too. And they and their fellow servants risk their lives at a moment's notice for anyone in need anytime. When they hear the, you know, the, the bell or the, the, the sound, whatever, they don't say, hmm, maybe someone else will get that. No, they, they get out of bed, they go down the pole, they get in the truck, and they go out and save you. That's what they do. That's, that's, it's just, it's their mentality. They work for the temporal welfare of any and all, and they do it regardless of their standing, they do it regardless of their status, and they lay aside their comfort and their privileges to do so. And they may never know the names of those that they go and save. Those that they help may never know their names. Well, Jesus worked for the eternal good, the eternal welfare of his chosen ones, whosoever will believe. And he laid aside his privileges as God and stooped down to earth to save them. And he knows the name of every single one. Every single one that he rescues, he, he knows their name. He made them. And he reveals his identity to the subjects of his mercy, of his unwavering love, and all who, all who receive his unmerited gift of salvation come to know his name. And, and then they resolve to willingly serve him all the rest of their life. Jesus gives and the redeemed receive his wonderful salvation. In his name, the, 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 the Gentiles will hope. In his name, the nations will hope. And what this points out is, is something that we've got to be very clear about, especially those of us who say, well, I believe in Jesus and, I, and, and he's my savior. And it's this. 
There is no other name and no other way. Acts 4.12 tells us, speaking of Jesus, there is no other name given among, given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. And there is no other way. Jesus said that very clearly in John chapter 14 and verse 6. I am the way and the life and the truth. I'm, excuse me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. And so you ought not say, well, you know, Jesus was my way, but, you know, Fred down the block, he's got another way, and we'll see each other up there. No, you won't. Don't fool him or yourself. There is no other name and no other way of salvation but Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen, and coming again. That's the truth. James White said this, the doctrines of grace tell us that God is the one who saves for his own glory and freely. They tell us that he does so only through Christ, only on the basis of his grace, only with the perfection that marks everything the Father, Son, and Spirit do. The gospel directs us away from ourselves and solely to God's grace and mercy. The gospel destroys pride, instills humility, and exalts God. That's the truth. And so like Jesus, we must be concerned for the salvation of all. And the implication for us is that we must know and proclaim the gospel. You can't proclaim what you do not know. Those he has chosen will come to him. They don't know it now, but he is, he is secretly drawing him by his, by them by his grace to himself. But all we see are people in need all around us. And you will hear this from me as long as I have breath. We have got to preach the gospel to all people. As I was looking at this, uh, this passage this week, I... I couldn't get away from, from something that just kept coming back to my mind. And it's that, that um, there's a, an Old Testament verse that seems to perfectly fit these, these points of Jesus uh, bringing justice and working humbly and, and, and showing mercy and giving salvation. And uh, it, it's from Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. In fact, a friend of mine wrote a song about it. You probably sang it before. But it says, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And what is it? Well, it is to do justly. It is to love mercy and walk humbly. Where, how, and with whom? With your God, the only Savior. Now, I have heard a lot of sermons and by God's grace, I've preached a lot of them. And there have been so many times when I have uh, I've thought, well, he just brought the plane down for a landing, and now he took off again. And you might be thinking that right now, but all I can tell you is this was planned. Okay? I just got to say a couple more things. And maybe, maybe some similar things, but get a bit more specific on some points. I would just say this. This is all good and well. It's all good and well. But how do you live like this? How can you live like this? And I would take you to back to verse 18. Matthew 12, 18. 
Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It's all about Jesus. But do you realize that once you're in Christ, it also points to what we're called to be and do as well. So how do you live like Jesus? Let me give you two verses, and then, and then I'll say four things, okay? And then we'll go home. Or we'll hang out for a while. Uh, Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, this is what God says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, that's institutional strength, corporate strength. Not by power, not your individual gifts, your individual abilities, but by my spirit. That's supernatural, only through him. John 15, 5 says, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, nothing. So, let me, let me mention a couple of things, and I'll tie them into these these things that are said about Jesus. First of all, he says, my servant whom I have chosen. Remember, Jesus said, uh, blessed are you who know these things if you do these things, right? I want to do them. My servant whom I have chosen. Now, Jesus is that servant, but once we come to faith in Christ, we realize we've been chosen by God. So what do you do? Well, number one, know that God is sovereign and you are not. Here's why. When it comes to our response to Jesus, it always comes down to a power struggle. Am I going to be willing to allow God to be in charge, or am I going to yank the reins out of his hands and drive myself? Uh, yes, Lord, you can have, yes, Lord, you can have authority over this, but no, Lord, you can't have authority over that? Doesn't work. Um, in so many things in life, you take marriage, family, relationships, school, friendships, it boils down to a power struggle. Who's going to reign supreme? Am I going to get my way? And will I allow my will to bend to that of another? And with God, the stakes are so much higher. Yielding to him or not takes on so much greater importance. The consequences are life-altering. One person said it like this. Pride is the self-centered determination to be God of your own life. To say in every act and word, my will be done. Humility is the ability to find your center in God whose overwhelming loveliness and glory are able to dethrone us from the usurped lordship of our own darkened hearts. Humility is spiritual sanity. Its constant refrain is, God is God and I am not. And then he says, uh, my servant whom whom I love. Speaking of Jesus. But all who are in Christ know they are loved by God. For God so loved the world. So find this in your life. That you've got to love Jesus more than anything. And you will find true security and freedom. We are grasping for straws all over the place every day of the week to prop us up. But there is so much more going on that meets the eye. So many pitfalls, so many traps, so many daily things that can trip us up and get, up, get us off course. You've got to remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the forces, the world forces of wickedness in the spiritual places. Only Jesus can be Lord. Love Jesus more than anything. You'll find true security and freedom. And then it says, in whom I delight. In whom I delight. And, and this is hard for us to think about the fact that God would delight in us. Well, sure, he delights in Jesus, but us? Yes, us. And do this. Find your greatest joy in Christ. 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and you will not be fooled by fool's gold. Let me ask you a question. Is your Jesus the Bible one? Or one of yours or someone else's imagination? Is he the just, merciful, humble, saving one? And last thing, God says, I will put my spirit on him. Of course, on Jesus, the Son, God the Son. But then we know that as we come to faith in Christ, he puts his spirit in us. Every Christian ought to be spirit-filled. Every Christian ought to be spirit-empowered. Every Christian ought to be spirit-directed. Be filled with the spirit. So here's what you do. Be careful to live by the Spirit so that you will not entertain the flesh. And we all know how our flesh loves to be entertained all day long. And I will tell you, this will get played out very simply and probably, for most of us, painfully as we let go of certain things and we hold on to others. Here's a few. Let go of every anything, everything that you are holding against someone else. Let it go. You're only enslaving yourself and them. Let it go. Let go of every lustful desire that you're holding on to. And let me say this. If you are close to making a decision that's going to ruin your life or your household, run as far away from it as you can. And here's what you hold on to. Hold on to truth. Tell yourself the truth. If you're the one who's always finding something wrong with someone else and not yourself, repent of it. Live every day thankful, grateful, helpful, and hopeful in Christ. Yield yourself fully to Jesus and his purposes. Before your feet hit the ground every single day, just say, Lord, whatever you want, your will be done. Do with me as you want. I'm available, I'm here. And, and, and cling to Jesus. The fact is, he clings to us. He holds on to us. But cling to Jesus and, and apply all this stuff daily like lotion or brushing and flossing or taking your vitamins or drinking your water, whatever, you, you know, whatever your deal is. Um, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus is the servant Lord. He served us while on earth so that we would serve him forever. And this is going to mean one of two things for us. Our cooperation with Christ's rule and the subsequent death to self and pride and sin or our rejection of Christ's rule and the multiplication of all that does not please God. We must have an accurate view of Jesus so that we can live yielded, transformed lives to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that just as Christ's ministry confirms his identity, Christ's ministry transforms ours. Thank you, Lord, for transformed life in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your justice and your humility and your mercy and your salvation.
Thank you for your grace in which we stand. Thank you, Jesus.